Hey, this is Chris, and this is the third of the Clubland and its Discontents panel discussions that uh, Basecamp Beta did uh, as part of the Interzone Festival here in New York at Goodroom a couple weeks ago. Unfortunately, the second panel discussion, uh, which was with Ryan Martin of Deus Records and Sybil Jason, aka Farst, um, there were some tec technical issues with that one, and it seems like that panel discussion is unfortunately lost. Um, so sorry about that. Um, we're bummed too. Um, but here is the third discussion, uh, which was with Veronica Vasica and Stuart Argebright. Um, this one talking about sort of late 70s, early 80s uh, New York. Um, and yeah, I uh, hope you enjoy it. Yesterday we had uh, two panels um, focusing on the 2000s and the 10s of New York uh, music, underground music history, uh, kind of specifically focusing on the interplay between dance and experimental musics. Uh, more is just kind of a launching point for broader conversations and general reminiscence. Um, so today we're rewinding uh, to visit the 80s New York. Uh, with us we have Stuart Argebright from Ike Yard, Black Rain, and other projects, as well as Veronica Vasica from Minimal Wave and City Tracks. Uh, does everyone want to say hi? Hello. Hello. <laughs> hi. <laughs> that was Katie. And this Chris. We're all saying hi, huh? Hi. Hi. Hey, what's up? Um, I'm Should really we good. We introduce at this. ourselves officially, since yeah. <laughs> people can't really see our faces. <laughs> that, that, that's reasonable. The audio yeah. stream. So my name is Veronica Vasica. I run the Minimal Wave and City Tracks labels out of New York City over here. And Stuart. Stuart Argebright. Uh, done a few groups, made a few records, spent a few nights out. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Um, so let's uh, let's dive into dive into talking. Um, I have some questions here in my notes app. Better. Um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm well prepared. I wrote all this down in uh, seven minutes on the uh, the train ride over. Um, so yeah, so the 1970s and 80s are one of the most iconic and mythologized eras in in New York history. Um, so let's just start with some general scene setting. What was the city like during this time? What were your experiences of, or in the case of Veronica, to some degree, under, general understanding of, um, of what the city was like at the time? Um, and uh, what, were the, uh, what were the subcultures like? Do you want to start? I think you were around, around <laughs> earlier. I mean, I was around, but um, sure. I was a teenager. Well, you know, if you're talking about 1970s and 80s, you had a period where you went from black and white TV to color. You had Nixon get impeached. 
or thrown out or whatever it was, resigned. All kinds of things happening. Suddenly the 70s began. Very jagged, edgy period there in film particularly. Taxi driver, things like that. Um, all that stuff we were all glomming onto and living through. Um, got to New York, spring of 78. Looked like a black and white movie. Union Square was a pill park. Uh, you could get, yeah, you could get your your wallet um, carved out by a hooker looking for five dollars. She would carve out your back back pocket of your pants with your wallet still in it. Sometimes maybe a little flesh attached too, and just uh, you know you'd be standing there without a back pocket of your pants inside Union Square. But there was a Maxis, Kansas City. In Maxis, Kansas City. I could see the end of No Wave. I could see. The end even of the glam Andy Warhol period. Warhol, someone I didn't acknowledge for many, many generations and decades until recently. But um, very interesting time. Punk was still happening too. So the punk energy, I think, was pretty similar to the no, eight, no wave and even hip-hop in its way. So people say, go this way, and the people who go that way. And it, whatever it is, color, shape, form, um, doesn't matter. You're going to express it if you can. So we went from trashy, you know, let's forget about New York period, to within that was a really cool group of mushrooms that grew up and uh, survived and now becomes famous stuff you can buy on a t-shirt. Um, I guess I'll start with 1985. I was, uh, about my first time magazine, Madonna was on the cover. And I was hiding the magazine in my bedroom because it was, you know, I was 10 years old and it was like... Scandalous. Risque to uh, be into... Anyways, I was really into Madonna. And I got her uh, her first record on tape. And, um, yeah, it was... Uh, the streets were unsafe. It was... Uh, the crime rate was pretty high in New York City at that time. So as far as uh, kids, you know, being out um, as teenagers, it was it was tough to get around uh, the rules. But as I grew up, I, I basically was uh, pretty rebellious as a teenager, um, discovering clubs downtown, going to the limelight, which was a converted church on uh, 21st and 6th Avenue, or 20th and 6th. And so that was around 1989-1990. There was also a radio station out on Long Island called uh, WDRE. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it was 92.7. And it was also called WLIR at one point. And so they played a lot of new wave and what they called uh, alternative music and indie. Um, And then there were various clubs all over the place, club nights. There was the Palladium and uh, the Pyramid Club on Avenue A and CBGBs, of course. Mars, which was like a multi-level club on West 13th Street, 13th and 10th Avenue. That was uh, probably 1990. That was probably the beginning of techno and rave. 
uh, in New York, crossing over with, like as you were saying, um, multi-genre, you know, clubs that were not just specifically about one genre of music. Um, what else? Yeah, I remember um, St. Mark's Place was filled with guys selling mixtapes of uh, different kinds of uh, mixtapes. You could get like reggae or kind of punk tapes, a lot of bootlegs, live concerts, the Sisters of Mercy uh, live concerts that I used to collect on cassette. I know Katie is impressed with that. <laughs> um, and yes, yeah, so there was a lot of accessibility to, uh, you know, New York City made that music accessible, that these bands that were from the UK, from France, from uh, all over the world somehow made their way to New York City. I also remember um, working at a record store on 86th Street and I was 16 and down the block from the record store was a Tower Records Annex and they had all these mute cutouts. So discovering SPK and Throbbing Gristle and all of these um, bands that were actually, that had been, their record, their music had been uh, pressed onto CD and then they were just discarded in these like dollar bins. Um, but yeah, that was definitely the gateway for me, early 90s. Just, just to riff off of some things you brought up, maybe I'll save Madonna for the last of what I'm going to say, but uh, um, you were mentioning about um, Mud Club and <clears throat> these early clubs. I mean, there was a period where you had the, <clears throat> the clubs from the 70s, the end of the 70s period, Maxis, Kansas City, Ocean Club, places like that where New York Dolls had played and people like that. And then you and Patti Smith, for example, maybe at St. Mark's Church or so. Those things made me move to the city from Washington, D.C. But then as soon as I got here, there were, the Mud Club opened within a few months, and that was a seminal, huge change in the whole club thing because the Warhol people were out, didn't matter at all, and all the new kids who had just come to town. And I still think of it as almost like a high school class because that high school class of 78 was Basquiat, Nick Taylor of Grey, and uh, Death Comet Crew, Madonna, a little later, um, but um, Danny Rosen, Kenny Compton, who I formed Ike Yard with. So we were all going to the clubs all the time, getting for free, have free drinks, get a cup of coffee down at, at Dave's Luncheonette afterwards, 25 cents coffee, sit with John Lurie and Ardo Lindsay and those people. But just like in high school, you had a feeling like, at least I did, like, oh, they're a couple years older. So, oh, well, you know, that's, let them have their scene. You know, they're trying to pick up girls over there. I see them, they're trying, they're struggling. I'm going to hang out over here, me and Ken and whoever else. But Ken Compton, who I, cut, who I put together for, got together with for Ike Yard, he remembers we met at the back of a pill show at Palladium. And the pill was playing, but I think it was sold out. So we went around the back where, you, there where the door was open for ventilation. We could hear everything clearly. Ken remembers I had a joint. We'd all smoke in a joint. We're listening, hanging out, just having a great time. But I totally forgot that story, but Ken brought it back up. But Ken brought up another story, which was Ken's girlfriend at one point was a woman called Madonna. And uh, I guess it was, we were rehearsing at the music building. We shared a space with a group called Circus Mort, which was Mike Jira's group before Swans. 
We had a little space there. We could set up our equipment. The drummer complained every time he would come to the room because his giant cymbal setup, would, someone would move it. You moved my cymbals. Yeah, just to set up. You know? But Madonna's studio was two doors down. So one day, me and Ken were making fun of disco music, and he was playing bass, and I was singing, and I was singing everybody, everybody, and all these things, and Madonna was listening, and ran to her studio, wrote a song called Everybody, showed it to Ken so proudly the next day, Ken, look, I wrote my song. And Ken goes, Madonna, come on, you know, what were you doing, listening? We're just fooling around. He said, no, Ken, that's my song. So I looked into it after Ken told me this in 2006, after we got back together, of course, and it turns out that 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 um, she her first song that she went went ahead and copywrote was was that one, and she gave the publishing to her drummer um, Steve Bray, who was studio it actually was at the time. So Steve got his first publishing. We didn't get anything. Ken was with Madonna. She would re, she would interrupt our rehearsals to borrow a dollar to if there was a half finished yogurt in a sitting in a garbage. Madonna was all over it. Um, but that's the Madonna that we knew. But eventually, you know, she came around. She was a big fan of Dominatrix and did some S&M stylings herself. But, um, you know, that's how it was. Everybody came from all around the, the, the U.S. and came to New York and wanted to do their thing. And I think if there's a common thread from then to now, it's that I'm sure everybody here did the same thing. Um, so I guess there's a theme there about how things change, but also they stay the same. That's Madonna. No, sorry. Um, but anyway, I, I digress, and I give back to you. Well, no, uh, I, I had he down here that I was going to ask about, uh, of course, the clubs of the era, Mug Club, Danceteria, et cetera. Um, you know, what were these venues like, which has been explored a little bit, but we can certainly expand upon if people have any, uh, any insights. Um, but I also wanted to contrast those club venues with... Uh, just a question about like what what the avenues for more experimental musics were like during the period, and uh, and how like for instance, um, the harsher, more industrial leaning sounds were received by both the more club leaning people as well as the more um, kind of establishment punk scenes. Well, it was pretty easy because, for example, at Danceteria, one week Ikeyard played, the next week SPK played, and uh, Graham Ravel walked up to my. Noyuri later became my wife. I was like, yeah, if you like this music, meaning Ike Yard, then you should come to this show. Then we all went to the show, of course, and we saw the great show at CBGB's where Graham Ravel put on his big S&M butcher's outfit and hood, and uh, he had something on the stage there under a, under a, I don't know, canvas or whatever it was, fly-proof thing. And uh, he had this huge machete, and sure enough, I knew something was going to happen. So we moved back, unveiled a pig's head, took out the machete, Chopped it to pieces, everybody in the front perimeter, all the hardcore people, of course, uh, just got splattered with meat. <laughs> so in a way, you know, you would have Danceteria, you would have Madonna on one floor playing her demo for Mark Kamen's SPK playing on another floor. And sometimes they would meet together or so, for example, like Yard and Madonna and so forth. But to also touch back what you just said just a second ago about those early clubs, just to throw in a couple seconds of information, Mud Club... You could see magazine, you saw Grey, you saw kind of the downtown groups, and usually it was kind of a prestige gig for groups from out of town. I saw Ultravox there, still with John Fox, uh, for example. But then you had just a five-minute walk away was Tier 3 over by West Broadway, 
So you'd end up going to both clubs at least twice a night. So you're going back and forth, back and forth. You know, you're walking with a drink in your hand, whatever else you've got. You see your friends going the other way. Where are you going? I'll be going back and forth. But tier three, you had New Order played within a month of Ian Curtis hanging himself. So, you know, you can imagine the atmosphere. You're going to see this group, you know. They didn't really know the synthesizers. They're pretty mopey anyway. So there they are, you know, trying to play. But it was, it was kind of something to see. But they would have groups like Delta Five, Raincoats, all these other groups that wouldn't necessarily get into the Mud Club. Mud Club was a little more, eh, Warhol-ish in, in, to some extent. But, you know, those clubs, they come and go, and you just live through it all. And uh, then comes, you know, comes the 90s, you know. The clubs ended, like, 89. remember going to, uh, there was a club called Area. Area was very cool. Dominatrix played there. Some people complained that we sold out. Yeah, right. Um, but then the same owners did the place called MK. And there they have my tattooed friend with his, with his boxer dog, the first one in East Village, I guess it was, back in the day when it was something to claim, in a photograph on the wall. And then I said, you know what, this is all this shit is over. This whole thing is over because then they tried to make it like the interior of like your old suburban home, like rec room. I mean, what the blank was that? But anyway, I kind of checked out around them. But it all went on. But that's actually when I started. Sure. 89, 90, 91. And, you know, the, the limelight, they, we saw bands like Front 242, uh, Nitzareb came, um, a lot of European industrial and uh, yeah, it, uh, Tuesday nights was communion, and so Dave Kendall would play in the chapel. He was hosting 120 minutes on MTV, and we would watch that like every Sunday or whatever. And then he would be in the chapel on Tuesdays. And, um, and that was one of the only places of- where you could catch those groups on MTV or something. Yeah. You know, eventually they had Liquid TV and those things too, or you could see those other things. But yeah, it was right. very hard to catch that that electronic wave at that time. Yeah, for sure. But so you you both seem to be hinting that there there was a kind of direct continuity from the scene of the early '80s through to the scene of the early '90s. I mean, I the way I experienced it, yes, but I wasn't in the clubs in in '88. Um, actually. I think 89, I was beginning to... Get into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's one thing to go to the clubs because you want to see a group you love and you've got, just got to go. Or you're just going because you've got nothing to do on a Wednesday night and you're going to be out and your friends are going to be out and you're going to get a free drink. Sometimes the two things merge. But the interesting thing, too, is that they would have Communion Tuesdays and then on Wednesdays they'd have Disco 2000, which was a totally different thing. It was all about the club kids. And it was like... Um, Oh, the club kids. Raving, you know, techno and rave. And Tuesdays was a new wave, industrial, um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Not to digress too far, but does anyone have any any thoughts on the club kids particularly? Just how they sort of figure into this broader narrative we're exploring? I I let that whole thing pass me by. (laughs) I I, I wasn't a kid by that point anyway, so... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we didn't, my friends and I didn't get into that whole thing because we would just, we just preferred those other nights to those, I don't know, we just, we didn't get into it. You like the industrial stuff more than the rave stuff? 
Oh, yeah. That time, yeah. Oh, but uh, rave stuff was but, fine. But, but rave stuff, but yeah. the, the club that was on the west side, uh, Shelter. Shelter. That was, a, that was a great club for, like, early rave. Did you ever go there? No, I didn't go to Shelter. But okay. uh, what was the other one over there? Tunnel? Tunnel yeah. was there. That wasn't a techno place or a rave place at all, but just there was a... Sometimes there'd be a there'd be a flush in a certain geographic area. There'd be a whole flurry of clubs in there, and you could kind of, you know, you go to one or you go to the other. It depends on what crowd you're with. But uh, you know, once again, you know, it depended on who was playing where and where you wanted to go or where you had a connection. And uh, and now all that's moved out to Ridgewood. Right. Yes. Oh, and then there was uh, Save the Robots yes, on Avenue B. Yeah. There which became it just they called it Robots. Save the Robots. Yeah. That was a cool place. You find yourself there like 6 a.m. looking around going, well, you know, <laughs> uh, I guess I'm going to go home now. <laughs> you know, But sometimes you'd hang on to that bitter end, you know. You know? But Save the Robots was great. Our old roommate, Dom, Dom Blanc, did that whole, it was like a, it was, they did like a red painted Chinese restaurant theme at some point there. And, you know, it's very different when you know everybody and you walk in and, you know, the whole crew is there and so forth. And then uh, after a while, you have to kind of pick your battles. And, and, and so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, East Village had all those places. They had brownies for a while, all those after-hours places, you know, where you'd have, you know, whatever, whatever being served to you on silver plates and so forth. And, the, you know, or eating shit off a plate, whatever you want to do, you know. all depends on your crowd. I wanted to ask a bit about... Um Radio, Veronica, you mentioned some radio stations. Stuart, you sort of nodded in agreement. Um, we were talking yesterday, uh, radio is a very interesting, uh, in, in this sort of pre-2000 era is really interesting to me because, uh, for example, we were talking to John uh, Porkchop yesterday about what he was hearing in Chicago. And he was like, yeah, man, like I heard Liaison Dangereuse on the radio and like it was presented to us as just like the same as all this other Chicago music. And we thought everyone was listening to that. You have stories like people in, you know, Detroit hearing, you know, Kraftwerk on the radio and just like it being presented to them as like just this normal thing. And they kind of thought everyone else was on the same on the same page. But at the time, no, like radio was super, super local. Um, it wasn't the fact that everyone was listening to the same thing. You had radio stations that were like catering to a very specific local group. And so, you know, it didn't necessarily... You know, your friend in Los Angeles probably never heard Liaison Dangerous. What were some of the songs that you heard on the radio? I mean, how big of an impact was listening to radio for you? What were some of the things that, like, loom large that you heard on the radio that seemed to, like, have kept, I don't know, have, like, cast a long shadow in your life? And how were they sort of presented at the time? Yeah, I would say for sure um, Liaison Dangerous was one that hit. Uh, Los Niños, and then hearing New Order on the radio was huge, especially um, being 11 years old and suddenly being like, oh, this is my favorite band ever, and thinking that they were kind of mainstream just because they were on the radio. Um, what else? Did you ever listen to Columbia, Columbia University's radio station? was always broadcasting all kinds of avant stuff and, you know, underground things. I think so. It just depended on what, on what your kind of brain was at, if you listened to that or not. But I, I know a lot of people did listen to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always listening to LIR, so I don't remember the Columbia one, but um, I'm trying to think of 
other, um, yeah, I mean, there were, there was a lot of wax tracks being played on the radio. Right, yeah. And, um, I mean, there was this, there was this song in particular called No Name, No Slogan by Acid Horse, which was a collaboration um, from Chicago. And, uh, yeah, there were a lot of songs that just stuck in my head, like, to this day. I mean, I used to make a lot of mixtapes mm -hmm. off of the radio, but, no, it definitely felt like that's what everybody was listening to. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, as you mentioned, WLIR, I mean, th there was recently a documentary about that station was on playing on Showtime, I think it was, and it brought back to me all the things about, you know, people listening to The Cure and all these different groups at the time. They were probably playing my record, Dominatrix, Sleeps Tonight at the time. So I was, oh, definitely. I was an avid listener, and they would set up geeks for us, and we would go play those things and so forth. That was 84. Like the year before, I was living in West Berlin and living with Liaison's Dangerous members and so forth. And, uh, you know, kind of seeing it, seeing that whole thing happening. You know, Beata bought all, the whole bank of Oberheim gear, and then Chris Lowe used it all. And, then all the money was gone, and so you know they could they could have a guest come from out of town and uh, and live there and so forth. But um, you also mentioned about mixtapes, and mixtapes is such an important thing because we can remember probably all of us used to do this. But I can certainly remember in the '70s being a kid and having a, my little cassette player, but you'd only have X amount of cassettes, and so you'd be listening to the radio, and I'd I'd be listening to. Oh, soon all the cassettes will be gone. By the way, well, so it goes. But uh, I'm sure they'll come back around again. Um, but, you know, I would catch, like, the, the announcer from the Washington, D.C. radio station would be like, and here's the new Roxy Music song. And I would rush to the tape player and catch, like, oh, but I missed the beginning. I'd record it anyway. And then the tape would have, like, part of the song. And then later on, I would get the whole song. But then, unfortunately, it was mixed with some other Bowie song happened to be there, too. And so the tapes just became a flurry of, stuff recorded over and over and over but if i hadn't caught those songs at the moment that i did at that point in my life things wouldn't have been the same yeah i had um every month i would make a tape so it'd be like may of mm -hmm. 87 june of 87 it's like i have I had a whole many years collection of tapes and those recordings were yeah i recorded them knowing that oh this just came out and you know this is the first time it's being played on the radio, and it's like, you have to be there. Do you yeah. still have those tapes? I do. Somewhere? I do. <laughs> oh, cool. You still listen to them? I haven't listened to them <laughs> in a long time. but um, That would be yeah. cool to revisit. Yeah, for sure. But that's for the archives. When you make that deal with uh, Carnegie or whatever. <laughs> um, I guess moving forward... Uh, <clears throat> so New York is uh, one of the birthplaces of disco, electro, and hip-hop, obviously, uh, which were all very influential on the kind of more predominantly white, experimental, that's in scare quotes, uh, musics of the era. Uh, what were the, the racial dynamics of these scenes, and how permeable were racial boundaries? Um, and f accompanying that, um, the city was also very broke during the 80s, obviously. How permeable were class boundaries in these scenes? I don't think the class thing really, I mean, of course it was there. I, I mean, I shouldn't make a general statement, but uh, I know for ourselves, being young kids and just uh, 
you know, trying to figure out where the next dollar was coming from or what the next show to go to was, it wasn't so important what, what class you were in. And you were, in a way, you were conscious, though. I mean, certainly the downtowners were very conscious of the uptowners coming downtown and glomming onto everything. Same time, I can remember when Michael Holman and Fab Five Freddy brought African Bombada from the Bronx down to the Mud Club. Blew everybody's mind. I mean, you know, to, to hear James Brown being played at the Mud Club because it'd be like warm leatherette, James Brown. Okay, and, but, you know, that was the beginning of the of, of Afri African Americans being able to say, well, here's our punk and here's our thing. And uh, I really think they're pretty much the same thing. They may sound a little different, but plugging your turntable into a street lamp power thing, that's pretty punk. Um, and I mean, knowing some of the people who started all those genres, certainly it's, it's, it's all very clean genre-wise by now. It's huge 2020 hindsight. But, um, you know, at the moment it was just like, today's today, what am I doing? This is what's going on. You know, Bombada's at the Mud Club. Bombada's at the Roxy. Uh, Madonna's at the Roxy. Yellow's at the Roxy, for example. Did anybody go to Yellow at the Roxy? One of the few shows Yellow ever did. Obviously I wasn't there. but Crazy. I've seen the footage on YouTube. Mal Malcolm McLaren at the Roxy. Buffalo Girls. Gals. Anybody? Okay. Oh. Ultravox at Haraz with John Fox. Okay. But uh, uh, one genre, one genre you, you didn't credit New York with was techno. So I've got to say, and I'll just say it in a gentle way, there is a Detroit techno, and that's well and good, but you alluded to it as well about Kraftwerk, people perhaps in Detroit listening to Kraftwerk. Well, somebody certainly listened to Kraftwerk because there's samples of Kraftwerk in some of these, some of these songs that uh, the Berliners hold up as like being, that's the original techno. Oh, sure, but, I mean, you but know, I'll just Planet say, Rock is a Kraftwerk sample, you know. I'll just say, listen to Ike Yard's Loss from 1982, and listen to a few of those Detroit tracks. Yeah. Period. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. Veronica, did you have any, uh, anything to add? Any thoughts? Yeah, I think going back to the class differences or whatever you were bringing up, I think we were, we came together for the music and you would, you know, as a teenager, you'd find yourself with uh, kids from all all over the city and all over, I mean, from different boroughs just coming to hang out at, you know, Washington Square Park or whatever. And um, it was always about, yeah, about the music and not about um, any of those, like, details of class difference or, um, yeah, I mean, it was very inclusive because of that. Because we were, I guess, different from the mainstream, and that was the unifying factor. And music was unifying. And, yeah. and that's always a small group, you know, th those who are not in the mainstream. Right. You could usually count, you know, the people who start seeing five or ten of them, maybe, you know. And, of course, everyone that's in the, the bigger circle of that family. But it's, uh, it's very small and very lonely sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's see what I have written down. Um, uh, so this, this, this goes out maybe a little, a little bit to, to Stuart. Um, 
but uh, Veronica, I'm sure you'll have more than enough to add here as well. Uh, Ikeyard was one of the only American bands signed to Factory, maybe the only American band signed directly to Factory. I could be wrong. Um, You're right. I, I know Factory licensed American acts, but I think the Ikeyard LP was the only one recorded directly or, or you know, signed directly to Factory. Um, so Factory explored the interplay between dance and experimental musics in a way related to what was happening in New York, but also distinct from. Um, so can we talk about Factory through that lens and if there's anything you want to talk about, specifically your experience uh, working with the label, Stuart? Sure, but if Veronica, do you have anything you'd like to say about Factory? Well, 99 Records comes to mind. There you go. But I didn't really live it as much as you did. You should talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about 99 Records for a second because there was a point there where there was really... I mean, as it used to be, there was... Things didn't exist, and then they came to exist. And sometimes in the in-between, you were casting around, just looking like crazy for any, any clue or anything that had a vibe that you wanted to get into. And Nine Nine Records came out of the blue. You went over there to the West Village. You went downstairs. The place was crowded with, all, with different music people. Ed was always such a great, just a great curator and a presence there. That's where, that's where you went to buy your records uh, at the time. And... Uh, it was very rare because you had a real sense of community, and you, but also then they, you know, they were putting out really cool stuff too. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how many records, I mean, maybe there were some drum, I can remember some drum and bass record stores that had some of that kind of feeling too, but 99 Records was very, very special and uh, so sad what happened really to Ed and, uh, well, with that big, with the deal between Furious Five, uh, White Lines, and uh, Liquid Liquid, you know, I mean, cleared out his bank account trying to get justice for, you know, this one group that ripped off his group's uh, bass line. And, uh, you know, there it goes, you know. Many, uh, many roadkill on the way to the 90s. But going back to Factory, um, yeah, I mean, my own experience was just, was finding Factory Records, Factory Records releases and record shops um, in the West Village and Kim's Underground, um, Rebel Rebel, that shop. And yeah, I mean, there are a lot of shops. Go ahead. <laughs> well, going back to Factory, I mean, there was a point, um, formed a group called Ike Yard. We worked for about a year to make our sound. We made one demo tape. Sent it to one label. It was Crepscule, Belgian Crepscule label. Record came out, no promotion. Just kind of came out. Maybe a dozen people knew about it. Um, then they told us, "Oh, your next record is on Factory." We're like, "Oh, great! We, you know, we love Factory." So if you've if you've seen the Factory movie, Twenty Four Hours Party People, there's a point where they're all sitting around a table and they've got this new table. So I mean, it's literally true. You know, the group's got. I mean, I know we didn't get a penny. But they did get a table. And, uh, but what was great about it was um, Michael Schamberg was running Factory America. His girlfriend was Miranda Stanton, Miranda, Miranda Stanton. And her, her thing called Thick Pigeon was on, I think there was maybe something on Cripscule and maybe something on Factory Benelux. Because there was, between Factory and Cripscule, there was a real um, relationship. Um, 
But uh, the factory thing for us, we got to play with New Order at the Ukrainian National Home. Great shows. Talking about electronics with those guys. They had to learn. And um, what else? Playing with Section 25. Having, uh, recording the factory album. The, recording the Crepuscule record, we had a budget. And we recorded at Sorcerer Sound and we could mix and actually go, oh yeah, let's add some effects. For the factory record, the money was spent already on the cover, which was some kind of clay impregnated paper, which cost almost, yeah, I don't know how much it cost, but it cost most of the budget to where when we were trying to finish the overdubs for the album, we had to say, no, you can't play that line because our studio time is now up. And we were in a studio called The Ranch and the guy was like, what do you mean you're going to record cymbals and play it backwards? I said, yes, that's what we're going to do. If you can't help us, we're going to do it ourselves. And, but that's what you dealt with in those days. Uh, another bigger issue was making electronic music. Having your friends, what was their take on you doing electronic music in a time of like bands and, you know, pig bag wannabe bands and so forth. Um, and what did it mean to be playing electronic music at that time? It's a little similar to how it is now, where you can have your setup and you play through and you go song two, blah, 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 and here's the part here and here's the part there and you stand up and dance around. But it's also about, you know, when you plug in that machine, you've got electricity flowing through you and it, and you've got to create something new and fresh and live and in the moment. And I still think, I still look for that and still hope for that when I see groups and so forth. But uh, don't get out like I used to. Is there real resistance among a lot of sort of these circles in adopting electronics? I mean, by, the late, by the late 70s, this was like the beginning of sort of more consumer electronics, you know, is when you could actually, as a musician, own something, you know, outside of a whatever university or something. There was a lot of, so there were new things, but people were, were really like. Well, I mean, if you said, you said end of 70s, I mean, what existed at the end of 70s? Maybe Dr. Rhythm, maybe a Dr. Rhythm box, which still had Bossa Nova, you know, settings on it and so forth. Wasn't really what you'd call a drum machine. So you really had very little. I mean, the first programmable drum machine, CR78, which is 80? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So if you were in the kind of intellectual Columbia University radio station listening crew who knew about Stockhausen and Zanakis and those composers, you might be a person who you know, had like a machine room and those things. But for regular people on the street, yeah, we used to have people from other groups who would go like, yeah, there's fucking Ike Yard, you know, playing electronic music. We were like, yeah, what about it? Uh, you know, like literally on the street, passing one group or another, you know, and so forth. Um, but we, you know, we didn't really care. But uh, there definitely was resistance. And then there was resistance in all the other layers of society as well. Right. Which was, you know, I'm an orchestra member. I'm going to lose my job. Yeah, was that where a lot of the resistance was coming from, even among sort of like the more punk scene was? No, I think it was coming from ignorant kids. Yeah. Neo-Lidaism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, everyone's always afraid of the next wave. Mm-hmm. Unless you're part of it. Back to Factory. Veronica, do you have any, uh, any further thoughts or, or insights on kind of the relationship, your, your personal relationship to Factory and how that might figure into kind of a, a New York-focused uh, New York focused narrative? Back to Factory. Um, Back Well, again, I mean, on the radio, they're playing a lot of Factory records, and that allowed for, you know, the music to be very accessible 
two people in New York, even if they didn't have uh, turntables or, um, you know, their own systems. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't have anything to say about it. Another big part of Factory's whole thing was the visual. So you had a great designer, Peter, and, uh, you know, what a huge, that was at least, that was maybe almost the same impact because you would have record cover which you would absorb everything from. All of your clues were there, which they then made intentionally bare and minimal, so you couldn't really get clues. But that just made it more mysterious and more attractive, and uh, it was kind of part of the kind of intentional blankness that industrial kind of always portrayed as well. Not all industrial, but some industrial. And so, so those, that's where you started to have genres kind of running together a little bit too. Uh, I mean, certainly, for example, even just with New Order, you had a group from Manchester who originally was, you know, a group with four members playing, comes to New York, hears club music, gets into electronic stuff, records in New Jersey, records with electronic stuff, eventually becomes more or less an electronic group to some extent. But, you know, you have to figure out what your steps are along that way and, uh, you know, uh, how do you make that happen? It's not really a plan, maybe, because you're living in the moment, so you have to kind of you're piecing it together. I mean, that's certainly what they, what they had to do. And, uh, yeah, I would say with New Order, it was a, a very natural um, combining of, you know, post-punk with dance, new wave, even a little hip-hop because of the people that were remixing New Order records. And that crossover was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then they were, yeah, maybe New York was what brought them into uh, club culture. Whereas before New York, New Order were basically a new wave band. You know, I don't think they had really reached that far um, to the dance and club scenes before yeah. coming to New York. Yeah, they, they had not at all, actually. They were just appreciators. But, but what was important about that about was uh, you would go to the club at night and then you would see... For example, the people from the label or people from the groups, and you would talk with each other and uh, hang out and do whatever and pass information, gear, you know, information tips and gear and things. So for New Order, for example, there was a studio in town called Unique Studios up by 42nd Street where I, where I had been lucky enough to do Dominatrix and the Death Comet Crew record. So that was a studio where you went to, and this is when studios were really important because you would go and the engineer would have all the greatest, latest gear for you, the you know, special sampling delay that you could use you know, special emulator you could use and these different things. So not only did they were those things new and just ex, just coming into existence, but there was that history of, for example, you know, Dominatrix was ended up being with Streetwise. And Streetwise, of course, Planet Rock and all the records that they did, so forth, John Roby and uh, Arthur, Arthur Baker. So there's that whole continuum there that, that we're just referring to again between electronic and uh, hip-hop and uh, uh, post-punk those things. Very interesting moment that still gets referred to all the time because, why? Because there was many things that were in between and the in-between things are often the best things. Even uh, that band that I put out, Soma Holiday, they came to New, well, um, one of them was from France and he came to New York and he was a taxi driver in uh, 1985 and his partner, she was, uh, she's from Massachusetts and she was just living in New York. They lived on Grand Street and Kent, like off of Kent. 
in that, you know, the very old, beautiful building that's like the standout building there. It's small. It's like a one level. That's where they lived. And they recorded at that, at Unique Studios. And so that track, Shake Your Molecules, you know, it's got that kind of, there's some hip hop element undercurrent to that track. And then it combines the European new wave. It's like all those worlds coming together. But yeah, stuff like that was happening. I mean, I didn't know them until later, but still cool. I wanted to ask um, about John Roby and like what what he was like, what his influence was. I mean, I've been recently, um, I knew the Jenny Burton version of Vina Kava, um, but I recently finally acquired the original version and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Or <laughs> I was pretty obsessed with those two versions. Yeah. And about eight years ago, I was trying to do a 12-inch with one on either side. And Please make that happen. John yeah. wasn't... I oh, talked no. to John Roby, and I was like, let's do this. And he was like, no, that's, that's in my past. Like, he just... Really? For whatever reason, he doesn't want to revisit. He's doing some theater stuff now. I don't... Yeah, I'm not sure. Are you in touch with him at all? I was, I was for a little bit, but I let it go. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> um, oh yes. He seems like semi-dramatic or something. There yeah. you go. Okay. I'll, I'll, we'll leave it um, at that. But but uh, John was so important because uh, back in those days, you would have there was the kind of thing about like uh, you know you're a musician who knows how to play and has had some knowledge of music, and then there was the people who just had an attitude and got up and did something, and I guess in a way. Maybe I'll generalize or maybe go over it, gloss over. But Arthur Russell, Arthur Baker was a guy who maybe was right place, right time, and also had that partner, John Roby. But John Roby was the one who knew the machines and could program and could make things happen. And when you hear those great tracks and things that he did, Seabank, for example, Seabank, One More Shot, those kind of records, which I, I guess in a way were, were his artier records compared to some of the more mainstream things. But without John Roby, yeah, I mean, the New Order records would have been quite different. Cabaret Voltaire would have never had a thought to do a club-type sounding record, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I saw John a few years ago at, um, I don't know what, uh, Mark Kamen's uh, memorial, and uh, mm. we kind of hit it off, and, yeah, let's do it, but uh, you know, after a while, it was a little bit like, just not my type. Just let it go. <laughs> All right, John, you know got all this shit in your head you just deal with it <laughs> but very talented definitely you know the, the crazy thing about that period you know like when we did dominatrix and it was on streetwise we were like on one hand streetwise great planet rock wow this is going to be great on the other hand was oh mafia related label how are we going to get paid oh well that's a whole nother story i won't even get into mm-hmm. but um as it turns out, Streetwise was related to a record chain called Strawberries, which maybe our parents may remember, um, or maybe your grandparents, maybe my parents, somebody's parents. But it used to be a record chain, and uh, Morris Levy was the mob guy who eventually went to jail. And, well, his label was, he made Streetwise. So that's all that stuff is related. I know Arthur doesn't like me to talk about this stuff, but sometimes it just kind of comes out, just like, you know, like an inspired movement. We want the juicy details here, so. 
we won't get too juicy. No, we're kidding. Because there was a moment where Ike Yard was looking for a new label. Factory never got back to us, didn't say a word to us. We were just going on, frustrated, and recorded another album's worth of stuff. And I started to go to those dance people. But it was, we were way... They were not ready for it. But there was... Uh, what was it? Uh, yeah, there was John Roby. There was uh, Mark. Mark. Another Mark who had another, another label in his studio. But you really had to hunt around, just like with 99 Records. You had to hunt for your places to go to find your thing because you knew what your thing was, but you couldn't tell if you were going to find a receptacle. So you were always looking. All right. Um, so, yeah, uh, continuing. Um, where do we see, based on what we've been discussing and kind of the kind of history we've been sketching out, where do we see things developing in New York? Where do we see the kind of confluence of experimental and dance music uh, going? And uh, to Veronica specifically, like wh where do you see the curatorial role of the record label developing um, within this kind of uh, structure? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as what I've been doing is, well, with Minimal Wave is, you know, unearthing the old stuff. And then with City Tracks, I feel like that's uh, more about the move forward and what people are doing these days. Um, but I'm really, yeah, I'm releasing music from all over. Um, and as far as clubs, I mean, I feel like it's becoming less about the club and more about the one-off space because it's just, it's a real estate issue. It's like hard to find that cheap space anymore. And um, even surviving as a label, I mean, you know, it's, uh, the price point has to be higher than, than it used to be just to And people don't wanna even. pay right. even what they were paying, so. Exactly. So that's tough, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, as far as clubs, I, I don't know. I mean, they don't seem to stick around for very long. I mean, Good Room's been around for a while, but in general, it's just a different, it's a totally different scene now. What do you think, Stuart? Well, you know, it's changed. It's changed over time. I mean, one question I always get as a veteran is often, Kids will ask me, oh, yeah, but do you still like New York? And I'm like, yeah, I do, because I live here, I've lived here for, since 78, and New York is a very a heavy town in a way, so it's going to always go through its scenes, and it's always going to go through people who are going to want to move to Berlin. But at the same time, um, yeah, look at the heavyweights. Look at the heavyweight art and literature and music, everything, design, all, everything that's here in the city. So it's always going to change. I mean, there was, used to be drum and bass clubs where you'd go to here to Hoover Bass, you know, for a little while there and so forth. And so, the, you know, and there's, you know, CBGB's did its thing and ABC New Rio did its thing in its time and Haraz did its thing in its time for a moment there. The Roxy did its thing for a moment there. You know, now there's, you know, I mean, 285 Kent, we can remember, you know, playing at and so forth. So it's vintage now. Time and places will always change. It just depends on uh, who's doing something on the edge and who's doing something safe and what you want to support. And if uh, having a label, that's a really, that's a, 
interesting challenge. But um, one thing I was going to comment was, similar to 99 Records popping up, Veronica popped up, like in your time. Like I remember first hearing about your radio show and starting to listen to it and becoming aware of what you were doing. And that was, I'm not going to put years on it, but there was a period where there was groups like kind of underground indie electronic duos usually. There was kind of, after Aphex Twin came out and did the ambient records, there was a period where there was always like electronic duos, maybe Boards of Canada and that kind of crew kind of made this kind of thing happen. Autocur too and so forth. And there was groups like Lowfish, units like Lowfish, different groups. And they would do things. I remember a thing called the Sin Festival down in the Lower East Side. And I would go to all those things, just always looking for something, listening for something, listening through hours of crap to get to something good. But there would always be something good. So that I would always then go out. But, you know, um, you can't always do that. You can't always make it out. Sometimes I can't make it to Brooklyn because I live in Manhattan and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get home. Um, but... That's been a that's been a recurring theme throughout the uh, the talks. Well, you know, getting home. <laughs> you, know, you know, I live in Stuyvesant Town, so the first avenue stop is right there, and it's so attractive just to pop right over. But you know, luckily today there was a the train running both ways on one track. But I just think you know, um, people people change, scenes change, music changes, music keeps moving forward, eked forward by the misfits and the in-betweeners, um, and uh, that's how it's going to be forever. Do we feel that New York affords more spaces for the, you know, the, the misfits and in-betweeners? Is there something about the city that uh, sort of uh, encourages people to explore those kind of interstitial spaces? I think it used to. used to be that way. And I think the legend lives on. And hopefully people come with a realistic point of view of like what it is they want to do. Because for one thing, if they have an idea, they can make it here or some other place. But I think just like the Berlin thing, the phase, you know. People are going to flock to places and they're going to end up in a, some kind of cold, cold-edged, uh, you know, spot, whether it's a street or a you know, corner of some borough or district and uh, realize, well, what the fuck is going on here anyway? Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I do remember coming to Williamsburg for the first time, um, 1991, to a, it was like a, um, it was some kind of rave at a squat on uh, Kent and North 5th, North 6th, and getting off at the, uh, the Bedford L train and just seeing absolutely nothing. It was completely desolate. Um, there was one deli there. A lot of friends have, for many, many years, told me stories of, of about Williamsburg in the early mid '90s, right. and it's basically like, like, like it was like a wasteland with packs like of wasteland. roving wild dogs. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or and packs actually, of a, a wild roving mine, people. A friend of mine that lived on my block growing up, uh, he went to a different school, but he was always when I was walking home from school, he would be on sitting on the stoop of his apartment with all these safety pins like uh, through his nose and his lips and his ears. And uh, it was just spontaneously, he was like, one day he's like, let's, let's go to Brooklyn. Let's go to this party. And so we end up, I was like 15 and I end up there on the waterfront 
And um, I mean, it was it was definitely life changing to see that. And uh, I mean, it was being shut down by the cops at some point, but um, people were living in there. People were partying. It was <laughs> it was madness. But uh, I guess seeing how things have evolved and changed is really interesting because people are finding more creative ways, uh, continuing to find creative ways to do parties and continue to throw, you know, whatever they envision, regardless. And of, just get by. Yeah. Regardless of the, uh, the outcome. So I think that energy is what keeps people here. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, so to, to wrap up, uh, I just wanted to ask everyone what their, uh, just to talk about some favorite songs or albums of theirs from the era, um, like what record or track for both of you sums up New York best? And uh, also maybe what were some, yeah, like New York, the, the 80s New York best. Uh, and also like what are some, maybe underrated or quietly influential jams from the era? Well, one big one was Ryuichi Sakamoto's B2 unit album. Um, huge electronic album by him that when it came out in probably 80 or 81, similar to how you could try to glom onto a piece of electronic gear, that record came out and we, we knew YMO, of course, but then Sakamoto came out with a kind of brutal all-electronic album there, just recently reissued, or being reissued, but uh, great track. Like uh, we, you were referencing earlier, Liaisons Dangerous, uh, but uh, we can remember Riot and Lagos from that record. And also The End of Europe, there it was. He just plainly put it right out there in 1980. You know? <laughs> um, that was one record that kind of floated around, like Liaisons Dangerous, because, I mean, Liaisons Dangerous, I mean, how many people really knew who that group even was? Yeah. That it was a guy who used to be with DAF and, and the woman Beata from, you know, early Eisters and Neubauten and so forth. Um, maybe if you were a DJ, you looked at it from just the, you know, facility uh, point of view and so forth. Um, but yeah, I would mention those records. It's funny that you mentioned that because I've, I've heard of Riot and Lagos being like a hugely influential track in New York. Um, and it makes sense, like the, the track is very New York sounding, you know, um, but... It's just funny to hear you mention that because I've just heard it now from a lot of different people that like that was a really like that was a big track that left a big impact. Like, and I've only heard this from from New York people, really. Maybe because he lives here in New York. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having a tough time with this one. There's so many. So then now my I'm just inundated, but. Um, don't I overthink mean, it. Definitely five, gut reaction. Definitely five eight six. That new order track. Um, that C bank one more shot track. Smoking. Um, what else? I mean, I don't know if Vina Kava. I don't know if that like John Roby. I mean, that when I hear that, I just feel so. I feel in like it's touch a, with New York in the 80s. It really, I get like emotional listening to that song. Like it yeah. really feels like a New York It's an anthemic. Drama. Yeah, it's very anthemic yeah. and um, synth heavy. 
But so, also um, Jenny Burton's voice. Oh yeah, no, wow. but, but the other yeah, but also the uh, the Vina Kava that's without the this without her vocal version. It's a heavy synth version. Um, yeah, it's special. It's I, I tried to I, I tried to track down Jenny Burton at some point and got as far as finding out that she was singing in that gospel choir at at a, at a church. Like in of, New York? Uh, where was it? I'm curious. I kind of forget where it was. Somewhere close enough to where it could have reached out to it, but I was kind of like, wow, that's like, that's a few fences away from where, my, where I'm at, yeah. mind-wise. And so I just let that, let that ride. I mean, I've also done things like try to track down the guitar player from Sparks, but, you know, I was about a year late, you know. Yeah. He died in, a, in an island in Thailand, you know. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, so it goes, yeah. Well, it's good that she's still using her voice. Uh, this was probably now, probably 15 years ago okay. that I w- that I did that tracking down. Wow. I'm always tracking people down, so you know, it's, it's, it's just, it just depends on what phase. You know? I feel like that cabs track Yashar is also very New York. Yeah. Cool. Any uh, any last uh, thoughts, words, uh, insights? Despairs. Yeah, just just a little bit about some of the other clubs, you know, for example, and the other scenes. I mean, from punk came post-punk and hardcore and a few variants thereof. Oh, and then there was ESG, of course. ESG, for example, Liquid Liquid, all, those, the, all hybrids, all hybrid groups. I mean, by now we could probably say that they have their own genre of, of young people who go, I want to make a group like that. But at the time, yeah, I mean, I think like well, like much of the much of the two thousands were people reinvestigating it, those exact kind of interstitial outliers and uh, and taking up that torch again. Yes, 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 definitely. Um, but the point I was going to make there was a there was a building on in the East Village. It's on Twelfth Street, and uh, my guitar player from Mike Yard, Michael Diekman, lives there. Used to live there, but in the one building was Allen Ginsberg. Arthur Russell, Michael Diekman, uh, Harley from the Cro-Mags, all living in the one building. And when I would go in to see Michael and sometimes rehearse in his kitchen or so, you know, Arthur would invariably be standing in the hallway with headphones clamped on his head, and we'd go like, nod at him, barely would acknowledge anybody. But coming up and down the stairs all the time was all these characters. Richard Hell lived there too. And uh, there was no doorbell, so Michael's was on the first floor, so inevitably people would be banging on the door and he'd have to go out and see all these different characters, including Ginsburg and all you know, Ginsburg's characters and people that he had sleeping with him, sleeping on his floor and so forth. But I guess the point is, is that um, no matter what age you are, when you got into it, when you came into, you know, came into the period where music was important for you, maybe you're you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, you get kind of your brain gets bonded with a certain kind of music and you hear it later in life and you're wondering why you're crying over a certain song. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that just has to do with circumstance, where you're at, and putting yourself in a place where things can happen. And I think that um, as long as there's cities, there'll always be that, that moment, you know. I mean, Shenzhen and China is probably one of those places now, you know, and uh, maybe Berlin used to be too. I love Berlin, by the way. <laughs> but I was there in 83, and it was much, much more interesting. We're a firmly anti-Berlin podcast. <laughs> there you go. Berlin skeptical. And, and, and just one last comment about, about Brooklyn. As you were saying about the early, the early 90s, 
Black Rain, when we started in 89, we eventually got a rehearsal space on probably 1990 at, on Hope Street. Hope Street at yeah. that time was a pretty forlorn, pretty forlorn place to go. But somehow we got the apartment in the back and sorry for the neighbors, but they really had to hear us banging on oil drums and everything like in, in the living room of Tom and Bones' uh, apartment. But uh, one night Bones had gotten a new bike and he was coming across the Wingsburg Bridge and two guys tried to rob him, take his bike. One guy took the bike and went ahead, but they shouldn't have split up because Bones got the other guy and threw him over the bridge and chased the other guy, chased the other guy down and got the bike back. So that's how we roll. <laughs> I don't know if that people would do that now, you know, the bike would probably just run you over or, or you know, or, or whatever it might be, but uh, that's how it was then. Pretty rough, yeah. pretty rough and ready. Yeah.